0: We've been dealing with this matter of sonship, service, and apostleship. So we've taken quite a few Sundays and dealt with the the matter of sonship. We kind of did an overview of the whole uh, study that we're going to try and look at. And then we spent several Sundays, more Sundays than I really wanted to spend, looking at sonship. But felt like that was what the Lord wanted us to do as we were going. So this morning we're going to move on and start looking at this thing of... Service And eventually, someday, I'll get those lessons up there on Sermon Audio. I haven't put anything on Sermon Audio for probably several weeks. I, I don't know how long it's been, but it's been a long time. And people have asked me different sermons. Hey, will you put this on there? Yeah, I will. Someday. <laughs> so, anyways. So, if you miss those Sunday school lessons, you can be one more that says, hey, will you put those on there? <laughs> and we'll we'll get it taken care of just as soon as I feel like it. All right? At least I'm not lying to you. How's that? <clears throat> Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us this morning. Thank you for the chance to be in church, God, Lord, to be gathered with you people, Lord, around your word. And God, we pray that you'd speak to us and help us, God, deal with us. And Lord, open our hearts, open our eyes, God, Lord. We we want to understand these things, Lord. And God, I pray, Lord, that you'd just help us, God. Pray that you'd be with us in the morning. service. God, Lord. I pray, God, Lord, that you'd... Uh, Lord, let your word be preached. God, Lord, we pray that there would be a good spirit of liberty in here, both in the Sunday school hour and in the Sunday morning service. And, Lord, everything that's said and done, God, to your honor and glory, we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, and look in verse 1. Excuse me. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, The Spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved." And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. So I really want you to pay attention more so to verse 8 through 10. He said, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we spent several Sundays dealing with this, with the fact, and when we are going through the introduction to this study, the fact that works is not what saves you. And that's pretty elementary doctrine, for you to understand before you can get saved. You've got to understand that there's nothing that you can do as far as works that will save you. The only thing that's required is for you to know that you're a sinner. You, ha- you have to know that. Uh, you can't get saved unless you first realize that you are a sinner. Once you realize that, you are now a candidate. And thank God for that. Uh, but once you realize that you're a sinner, you also have to understand that Jesus Christ died for your sins. So you, there's not something that you're going to be able to do to pay for your own sins. Jesus Christ died. If you could pay for your sins, why did Jesus go to Calvary? That, that will be a big unanswered question that you won't be able to answer. Uh, you'll have to make up some answer. He was a martyr. You know, he was a good example, whatever. But none of that is true. The truth of the matter is that Jesus Christ was the sinless son of God, and he took sins on his shoulders... He had no sins. He took your sins on his shoulders, and he died for me and you. And once he died for me and you, the only thing that's left to be done now is for you to look at Christ and believe by faith. That's what he says right here in verse eight. He says, for by grace are you saved through faith. It's the grace of God, and you access that grace. You're a partaker of that grace simply by believing. It's that simple. And then he goes on and he says that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Pretty self-explanatory. If you could work for your salvation, then you would get to heaven and you would say, look at all these wonderful things that I've done to get me here. And nobody's going to be able to do that. Everybody that's in heaven will have to point back to what Jesus Christ did at Calvary. And so, anyways... But then he goes on to verse 10, a lot of folks are content to stop in verse 9 with their salvation, with their, with their Christian life rather, but that is not where the chapter ends. He goes on to verse 10 and he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus Unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So he says, he makes that statement there, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. It was God's intent when he made man that man do good works. That, that was God's intent. God's intent was not for man to sit around and twiddle his thumbs. It was not God's intent for man to be deviant and, and mischievous. God's intent when he made man was to do good works it was <clears throat> when god made man i put it to you like this just very simply which we have we've we've emphasized or i have tried to emphasize a lot in my preaching and teaching when god put man in a in the garden he gave him a job he didn't just put him in a garden just to sit there and enjoy things he he was to enjoy things but god gave him something to do well that's a that's a good work having a job is a good work i mean so long as it's not gambling or You know, whatever. I mean, there's a lot of things. You know, running the bar—that's not a good work. Amen. So, any you bar runners in here, you need to shut your business down. Uh, But, anyways, uh, God God's intent was for man to do good works. Well, man messed that up by disobedience. God God. Pointed out one particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he said, "Don't eat of that tree." He said, "That day that you eat of it, that day you're going to die." Well, you know the story. Hopefully, I know. You, uh, hopefully, you know the story. If not, you can read it right there in Genesis two and three, which I encourage you to do. But woman went over there and partook of that tree, and then she gave to the man that was with her. There was Eve, and then she gave to Adam. They both ate, and then all of a sudden their eyes were opened. They knew some things that they didn't know before, and all of a sudden now they're ashamed because they know that they're naked. And so now they've got to run from God. Man's been running from God ever since. Well, God's intent was for man to walk in good good works. Well, man messed that up. And so now when God saves a man, God doesn't just save a man for him to sit on the church pew and, you know, just go about, you know, doing whatever he does in his day-to-day life. God has something for you to do. God has God has some work for you to do. Let me put it to you like this. God has a purpose for you. And uh, let me just kind of throw this out there. There is all kinds of talk uh, on it, all kinds of religious it almost makes me want to throw up in my mouth saying the word religious. But you get on YouTube. I, I don't mess around with TV, but I, I do watch things from time to time on YouTube. And right there on the side, they've got all these videos. If you watch any kind of church service, which I that's typically what I watch on YouTube, and they've got all this stuff on the side of all these people that you should pay attention to. You know, Stephen Furtick and... Uh, that was the latest one that I looked at. And I'll just say this to scratch an itch. He's an idiot. Stay away from the moron. Any guy that'll get up and have head banging in his church service and act like God's glorified out of that, he's a moron. He's a moron, he's a moron, he's a moron. You say, Brother Nathan, I don't like that kind of talk. Too bad. Just too bad. that That's foolishness. God has never looked at anything that the devil does and says that it's wonderful. Yes, sir. God... You know, the guy wears a little leather jacket on his back that looks like it it says something crafty as far as religion concerned, but it looks like an emblem, that, like the old Guns N' Roses emblem. You know, that rock band. I've never listened to a song that they've sang, but I, I know who they are because some preachers that I listen to have mentioned them. That's where I get all my exposure to uh, bad music. But anyways uh listen to preachers talk about it. But that's exactly what the emblem looks like, and I don't believe that's by design. Yes, sir. Try to bring that stuff in church. And we're gonna keep being insistent about keeping that stuff out of church because church is supposed to be clean. Because God, listen, God intended for man to do good works. Good works. Good works. God wants good works. And so that's what he says. We're his workmanship Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now, let me just say this just to kind of set some things at ease this morning. Maybe it's just me in my own mind. I feel like maybe I made things a little tense in here by calling, you know, this fellow an idiot. Maybe you're sitting there in your mind saying, Brother Nathan, I just don't feel like it's a good work for you to call people idiots. Well, let me ask you one question. Do you think it was a good work for Jesus to take a whip and beat people with it when they was in the church house selling stuff? Kicking over tables. You know, these these hippies used to wear these things called, you know, these little bracelets that said, what would Jesus do? And some of y'all going to get upset about that because you used to wear them. Yeah. I've wore them. And of course, I quickly found out that that was bracelets like that's for girls. Yeah. So I took that stuff off. Uh, hey, man, we on a roll this morning, but it just have to be on a roll. I got a lot of stuff I want to cover this morning. But anyways... <laughs> Uh, used to wear this stuff, what would Jesus do? I'll tell you what Jesus would do. Jesus would see a lot of the stuff that's going on in churches today and he'd have a belly full of it and he'd run people off. He, he really would. And I, I don't say that with joy. I don't say that because we're glad about running people off. But li- listen, I, what I want to get across to you in this little commercial right here is that your concept of God has to quit being conveyed by people like Stephen Furtick and Charity Gale, you uh, say, so, so I don't know who that is. Some of you do. I guarantee you some of you do. You know, when people get up in a, in a, in a, on a platform, it's a stage is really what it is because it's a performance. And they look like they rolled out of the 60s and 70s Woodstock m- movement and they're singing songs about, I love God and you're so wonderful. That's not a good word. That's not a good work. Jesus is a lot more concerned with how holy his house is than with how welcome everybody feels. You reckon the Pharisees wandered out that day? Hey, the Pharisees got mad when he ran all those money changers and those people that were selling doves. They, the Pharisees got upset about that. Well, he, he didn't make those people feel welcome. No, but I guarantee you one thing his father felt welcome. God the Father felt welcome in there after he got done with it. He said, take these things out of here. He said, you're not supposed to be making my my father's house a house of merchandise. This is supposed to be a place of prayer. Amen. (laughs) It seems to me Jesus was a little narrow-minded. You know what a lot of Christians is eating up with today? The nice guy Jesus. And listen, listen, there's not a doubt in my mind that Jesus loves people There's not a doubt in my mind that Jesus is compassionate. Hey, that's the only way I got saved. That's the only way you got saved. Jesus Christ is a compassionate, benevolent individual. God the Father loves people. There's no doubt in my mind about that. But if you think for five seconds that God's going to put up with craziness. No, sir. You say why? Because he's interested in good works. He's interested in good works. So... Let me get back to this now this morning. When we dealt with this matter of sonship, what we talked about was the fact that in sonship, when we covered that study, what we dealt with for a significant period of time was before you got saved, there was a leadership in your life. And it's stated right here in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, verse 2 Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The leadership that you were under before you got saved was, it was the leadership of your flesh. It was you telling you what to do. And I made the comment, you're really falling under when you're doing that, when you're lost, really what you're falling under in a grand scheme is what he terms in the beginning of verse 2, the course of this world. And the course of this world is determined, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, by the God of this world. Uh, let me just throw this at you. It's the God of this world. That's the devil. The devil, his, his philosophy... His philosophy that he operates by is you just do your own thing. Just be you. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 14, you're given the uh, the attitude, the hard attitude of Lucifer. So if you don't know who that is, that's the devil. That was his name before he became Satan. Uh, God... If there's a God, why is the devil in existence? Well, God didn't make him that way. He, he became that way because he's just like man. He's a rebel. And that's just the way it was. But what he said in his heart was, he said, I will ascend into the most. I will send, make my throne above the throne of the stars of God. He said, I will ascend and be like the most high. It was a constant attitude. You go in there and look in Isaiah chapter 14, and the thing that you see over and over again is I I. Five different times the word I shows up and it's I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Well, when he comes in Genesis chapter 3 as the tempter, as what the Bible terms in Genesis 3 as the serpent, the enticement that he offers to Eve first, he talks to Eve first, which I don't recommend you do much fellowshipping with the devil, Amen. Uh, but he comes to Eve and he says, Yea, hath God said, and she says, Yeah, God said, Yada yada yada, and he said, Ye shall not surely die. He said, For God doth know that the day that you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened and you'll be as God's. Well, see, what he's what he's dealing with her about is the same thing that's in his heart. It's his philosophy. That's the way by which he works. His philosophy was, here's God. I'm down here, now I want to at least get here, but what he says is I'm going to take my throne and not just put it here, I want to put it above, which any church, I'm just throw this out there, any church that would teach you that Jesus Christ and the devil are brothers is a false church, they're on the devil's side, you say, who are you talking about, Mormons, they, they teach you that Jesus Christ and the devil are brothers, that's idiocracy, If they're brothers, Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. That's all there is to it. Amen. Amen. Uh, Maybe it is, maybe they are in the Book of Mormon, but that's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. Amen. Amen. That's, That's something for you to be very important. Well, what he does when he comes in Genesis chapter 3 is to do the very same thing with man. Hey, you don't need to be down here. You don't need to be subject to God. You need to get here. You need to get on an equal level with God. And what that is, is that is the course of this world. That's how this world is laid out. Uh, you can see that very prevalent now in the United States. And it really, it, it, there's always been that spirit in the United States. There's always been a level of that that has operated in the United States because it's just the way that this world is and the United States is part of the world. But it really got a lot of steam when evolution was starting to be piped into the schools. And now you're dealing with a generation who there is no God. Well, if there is no God, then you're God. That is the philosophy that the devil threw out there in Genesis chapter 3. Eve took it. She handed it off to her husband, he took it, and here's where we're at, and that philosophy is still being pushed, and just look around in your country, and you're living in a small town, many of you live in a small town, I think everybody in here lives in a small town, to where you might feel comfortable leaving your doors unlocked, but you can't do that if there's a population of over about 10,000 in a small little place. It's getting to where it's not that safe here in Folkestone. You say, what is that? There is no God, so man is now God. Well, if you're God, then just do what you want. You say, what is that? Course of this world. It's the course of this world. Eliminate God because man is his own God. Well, that's, I spent a lot of time on that. So let me try and move on. Well, what that, what that does, what that leadership in the old life does following the lust of the flesh, what that results in is something that's called disobedience. Anybody familiar with that? <laughs> it's called disobedience. You know about that because hopefully you had a mom and daddy that insisted you obeyed. And when you disobeyed, they probably popped your ear in. Hopefully you don't think that's abuse. It's not abuse. That's love. That's what the Bible says is Love. Well, under the Lord's leadership, getting to this thing of service, under the Lord's leadership, so you're under the leadership of the flesh as a lost man, that results in an action, right? It's disobedience. Well, now you're under new management. Now you're under new leadership. We spent several Sundays dealing with that, talking about, hey, now that you're saved, you have the Spirit of God living on the inside. Now you're under new leadership. It's the leadership of the Holy Spirit. It's the leadership of God. God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Ghost. Okay, he's inside. So now there's new leadership. That should result in an action. Obedience. But before we even get to obedience, let me just emphasize for just a second, it should result in an action. You say, well, I'm saved And I'm happy about that and I'm satisfied with that. Well, you come to church and we'll shout with you and we'll swing from the, not the chandeliers, but maybe we'll tear the sheetrock back and swing from the rafters. But that should translate into something, not just, Hoopla, although there's nothing wrong with that, but it should translate into something when you leave this place. And the ultimate thing that it should translate to is in obedience. Now, look in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and look in verse 11. Hebrews chapter 9 and look in verse 11. Hebrews 9 and verse 11. The Bible says, "But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of, and of uh, if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh." How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So what that verse tells you, this is the point I want to make from that verse right there in verse 14. The blood of Jesus Christ not only washes your sins away. It does do that. But in doing that, it puts you in a new realm. And that realm is a realm of service to God. The old realm that you were in before you trusted Christ as your Savior—it's a realm of service to you. It's what you did. Uh, doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter if you never, uh, you know, did something that somebody else didn't do. I I know this about every person that before you got saved, your service was service to you. Uh, The reason that you obeyed mom and daddy is because you didn't want your hide tanned. Ain't that right? Nothing wrong with that. That's a good motive. But it's service to you. Well, now, listen, now that you're saved, the motivation is service to God. Hey, it's not just that, hey, if I do this and get caught, mama's going to wear me out or the preacher's going to preach against it, but it's hey it 's not pleasing to god there's there is a God consciousness now is that right that 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 has to be right and I pause there because what 's really concerning is that a lot of Christians professing folks say they 're saved. there seems to be no God consciousness. It really seems to be a sense of Fear of retribution by the people that they associate with. And I, you know, if you're going to let peer pressure be something as far as, you know, pulling you in the wrong direction, I'm not afraid to use peer pressure to pull you in the right direction until you learn that, hey, there should be some attitude towards God. But, it, but you know, when you get saved, there has to be something Heaven word, there has to be some attitude towards God. Hey, now there is an awareness before I was, if, if I tried to do something religious before I got saved, maybe it was toward God, but man, there was something there that was blocking. It's a dead, it's a it's a conscience that's bent towards dead works. Going to church, it's a dead work. Why? Conscience is not clean. Reading your Bible before you get saved, in a sense, it's a dead work. I didn't say it was bad. I didn't say you shouldn't do it if you're lost. I just said it's a dead work because why your conscience is not clean. Well, the day that you get saved, God takes the blood of Jesus Christ and he applies it to that conscience and your conscience is washed clean. And now in your mind and in your heart, there's something, there's a connection there that says, hey, I'm not just doing this because, you know, the preacher said so. Or maybe that's what got you started. Or maybe that's because what mama told me to do. Maybe that's what got you started, but now, hey, there, there is a living connection between me and God, and I want to do something for God. You said, Brother Nathan, this is too simple. No, you, this is where you need to start. This is where you need to start. If he's going to purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God. As a lost man, you did. As a saved man, you do. As a lost man, you did according to your flesh's leadership. And as a saved man, now you do according to the Lord's leadership. Look in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And look in verse 17. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. He said, but God be thanked that you were the servants of sin... But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded, you members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity. You remember how you did that, right? Right? You, as a lost man, you, just, you say, how, do, how, does, how does sin take place? You just hauled off and did it. Is that right? Well, that's what what he's talking about here. Well, he says, even so now, yield your members, servants, to righteousness unto holiness. So now as a Christian, you haul off and do it. As, As a lost man, you yielded to the leadership of the flesh, and that's just what you knew, and you hauled off and did it. Well, now as a saved man, you yield to the leadership of the Holy Ghost, and you haul off and you do it. You said, Brother Nathan, there has to be something more. Can't you give us some kind of secret that's going to help us, you know, really get in touch with God and, you know, just become this great Christian? No, because it doesn't exist. I'm, I'm dabbling a little bit in my Sunday morning sermon. But a lot of Christians are living in a fantasy land as far as their Christianity is concerned. You think that there's some magic key or there's going to be some magic potion that you're going to apply to your life and it's just going to make everything better. No, it's going to be a fight. The same way as a lost man to where you, uh, before you trusted Christ, if you wanted to do something that was wicked and ungodly, you just did it. Because that's the leadership that you had. That's what you wanted to do. Well, when God saves you, God God didn't turn you into a marionette puppet. You say, what's that? Pinocchio. That's not what God made you. You read through Romans chapter 7 and you find the greatest Christian that ever lived. He had a battle between his mind and his flesh. Something in here is saying, do right. Something in here is saying, I don't want to do right. I want to do all that stuff I used to do. And because of that, the greatest Christian, the greatest Christian that ever lived, he looked at himself and said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Well, see, a lot of Christians are looking for something that will bypass that. Listen, if Romans chapter 7 is in the Bible, that's Paul the apostle. You're not going to get around that. It's going to be a fight. 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 Take courage, man. Fight it out. Amen. Amen. That's right. Kind of encourages me, makes me a little bit happy. Uh, you know what that does? That'll teach you that'll teach you not to be unrealistic in your expectations. I'm never gonna sin again. <laughs> that's right, that's right. You just did. You lied. That's that's very true. You wanna come up here and teach this lesson? <laughs> that's true though. Uh, that, that's a God, uh, God's honest truth. That's either a, that's either a liar to a statement of gross ignorance. And if you just got saved, we could, we could deal with your ignorance for a little while. Sure. Absolutely. But don't be unrealistic about those things. Absolutely. Yes, sir. So you, you haul off and do it. All right. Now, let me, let me say this. Sin is not just an attitude. It's not just a disposition. It's an action. James chapter 1 says, uh, let's go ahead and just turn over there. Let's let's take a look at it. I could quote it maybe close anyway, but let's look at it. Look in James chapter 1 and look in verse 13. James chapter 1, look in verse 13. He said, uh, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. See a guy standing in a grocery line checkout with a 24-pack of beer in his hand. Oh, God, I really wish you would just take this away from me. Well, God wasn't leading you to go get it from the grocery store anyway. God doesn't tempt people. Well, Where does that temptation come from? Verse 14, every man's tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It's in you. Where's that desire for beer come from? Your flesh. It's in you. Yes, sir. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Well, what I want you to see right there is that sin's an action. Listen, every single one of you folks sitting in here, you red-blooded people just like I am, and you know, you know that throughout the week, throughout every day, there are things that get presented to you in your mind, opportunities. Something will pop up and there's some kind of opportunity. I don't know what it is for you that really gets your goat, whatever it is that your vice is, but there's something. And it don't have to be your particular vice, it could be anything. Something gets presented to you and there's your opportunity. Well, just because you've been presented with it, that does not mean you've sinned. I'll just hang out there for a second because maybe that's important for you to understand. Temptation is not sin. Being tempted is not sin. You can't keep a bird from flying over your head. But you can keep him from making a nest in your hair. Ain't that true? Okay, well, you can't necessarily uh, stop the temptations that come and You're in a body that's messed up. Your body. You, you say, you don't know me. I, I know you well enough to know you're messed up. You say, Brother Nathan, I'm three times your age. You're messed up. I don't know that there's anybody in here three times my age. That would make you pretty old in your hundreds. (laughs) But you're messed up. Well, see, your temptation, the temptation's going to come. That's not necessarily sin. Sin is when you yield to it. Sin is when you make a decision. Okay, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to act on it. You have that in your mind? Okay. Now let's turn around and let's apply this to what we're dealing with now in your new life preacher stands up and says, hey, you should read your Bible. And it's sitting here in in Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I'm going to read my Bible. And you go home and you don't touch your Bible. Well, I meant to. Yeah, but God didn't save you to mean to. God saved you to do. Uh, You apply that to anything that God deals with you about Whenever you open your scripture, open the Bible, or when a preacher preaches, whether that's your pastor or some other evangelist or whatever it is, got to prick your heart and deal with you about something, and you get it in your heart, okay, I'm going to do this. Hey, that's right. You know what's really amazing is something will get said, and I can see it when I preach, and I, I can see it because I'm looking at you the same way you're looking at me. Be careful about the facial reactions that you give While the preacher's preaching, because you might give yourself away. (laughs) Uh, But I can say something, and I can watch people sitting in their pews going like this. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes they'll even say amen. Amen, that's right. But the very things that they say amen to, they don't correct. They don't fix. You don't fix. You don't correct. Well, God did not save you to say amen. Amen. Although that's good. It would make for a dead church service if you just sat there like a bunch of toads sitting on a knot on a log. But God didn't just save you to agree. God did not just save you to agree with what you read in here. That is a great start. You're not going to obey unless you agree. You're not going to obey the scripture looking at it and saying, I don't believe that. That ain't right. That wasn't supposed to be in there. You're not going to obey. You know, why? you know why I'm a King James only man? Part of the reason is because I watch all these guys that use all these other versions and they're constantly correcting it and I see what kind of life it produces. It produces a life of no obedience. Why would it? If you're constantly challenging the thing that you're looking at, why would you obey? Sure. Amen. Amen that just came down from the heavens I suppose yes sir yes sir so just because you say amen or agree with something that God's dealt with you about that is not necessarily good works that's a good start but that's not good works good works is an action it's the doing of a thing listen if we could if the the way that we could have a good church you want me to tell you how we could have a good church we've got to get people moving you have to get moving. I have to get moving. Amen. Now, once you get moving, you're probably going to do some things wrong, but we can deal with that as long as you have a teachable heart, as long as I have a teachable heart. There was a fellow in the book of Acts who went around preaching. His name was Apollos, and he went around preaching, and he was preaching what he knew, but he was behind the times. He was preaching John's baptism. And... Two folks pulled him off to the side, a husband and a wife. They weren't the the husband wasn't a preacher. Neither one of them held offices in the church. They just pulled him off to the side and said, Hey, you're preaching John's baptism, and that was true a couple of years ago because of the nature of the book of Acts. That was true a couple of years ago, but now Jesus Christ has died at Calvary. You're supposed to be preaching that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Go preach that. And Apollo said, Hey okay. And he started going out and God used him. But he was moving. He was he was busy. He was doing something. Absolutely. So, good intent, God did not just save you to have good intentions. God saved you to be a doer. If you look right there in James chapter 1, uh, just came to mind, look here in verse Uh, 21, he said, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word. It's word that's, you know how you graft a branch into a tree, you cut a little incision in the stock and you put this branch, this new branch into into the tree. Well, he uses that term to give you the idea of God taking his word and engrafting it into you. It's not just Uh, Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. But now it's something that you do. It's engrafted. It's something that's been made a part of you. Well, he said, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Verse 22, but be doers of the word. Be doers and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in the glass. Uh, That's like a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Well, you've got to be a doer. You've got to be a doer. That's why the Lord saved you. That's what God saved you for. Yes, sir. So like, likewise, obedience is not an attitude or a disposition, but it's an action. It's a right action. And God defines what those right actions are. Uh, a lot of folks get it in their mind because they, they have right intentions, that that is going to produce right actions. And that is not the case. I meant to do well. And so I did something. But it didn't produce right actions. And most of the time what happens is if somebody gets it in their heart to do do something because they mean well and it doesn't produce the favorable result that they're looking for, they get bitter. They get mad. Well, why didn't this turn out the way that I expect? Well, God is not just looking at you to have right intentions and, and then operate on those right intentions. God wants you to have right intentions, but you've got to have right actions. You've got to have right actions along with right intentions. You try and have right intentions with wrong actions, you're going to get a, very well a wrong result. It's very possible God will be merciful to you. It's very possible God will be very gracious and let things work out right, but sometime or another, God's going to send you some instruction and say, hey, you shouldn't have done that. Yes, sir. But a lot of times people will do the wrong. They'll have right intent or what they think is right intent, and it's usually not right intent. I'll give you a couple examples here in just a second. But they have what they think is right intent. They don't do right actions. They get a wrong result, and then they're sitting here mad at God. And why Why'd you let all this happen? God didn't let it happen. You let it happen. Let me give you a biblical example, Saul. God told Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, he said, these people were fighting against your people when you came out of, when you came out of Egypt, the, the Amalekites, Amalek, and he said, I want you to go in and wipe them all out. Just wipe them all out. You say, I don't understand why God would say that. Well, that's a different study for a different time, dealing with the kingdom of heaven in the Old Testament. You're not dealing with that in the New Testament. Just throw that out there. But he says, go in there and wipe them all out. And Saul says, okay. And he goes in there and he looks around and he sees the sheep and he sees the oxen. And he sees some more livestock and he keeps them all alive. And then he sees the king and he keeps him alive. And the fellow who came to him and told him, God told you to go in there and wipe them all out. he comes a little bit later because God woke him up, I guess, in the middle of the night and said, it repenteth me that I have made Saul king over Israel for he hasn't done what I told him to do. And so Samuel goes in there and he says, hey, did you do what God told you to do? And he said, oh, yes, I've done exactly what God told me to do. And Samuel said, well, what's this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? Uh, The sheep's giving you away, Saul. He said, well, the people wanted to keep them for sacrificing unto the Lord. Hey, there needs to be some sheep to sacrifice unto the Lord. But Saul had instructions to wipe them all out. God didn't want them sheep, but he had good intent, but it's not what God told him to do. You say, well, I meant well, preacher, whatever it is that's going on in your life right now, you did something and it wasn't right, didn't get a right result. Well, I meant well, Well, was it what God told you to do? And we're going to get to this in a second, how you can know what God told you to do. I don't know. We'll get to it today, but, but is it what God told you to do? You say, but I meant well, doesn't matter. God's not interested just in your intent. Well, God knows my heart. Yeah, but he knows what you did too. Here's a little kid stealing cookies out of the cookie jar five minutes before dinner. Mama scolds him. Well, you know, I just meant to get something to eat. And mama says, well, you could have waited five minutes and you'd have had dinner. Don't care, don't care about your intent. Care about what I gave you instructions to do and the fact that you didn't do it. God's interested in obedience. My daddy used to have a saying uh, that they apparently used to throw around at his workplace. And uh, when we worked with him, we built, dad built a house out here on 3R Fish Camp. And I, I, I forget how old I was at the time, maybe eight or nine years old while they was building that house. Maybe a little older than that, but I don't remember. But uh, dad would tell me to go do something and I would sit there and kind of look at him and or, you know, maybe even be so brave as to say something, you know, throw my two cents in, and Dad would look at me with a smile, and he'd say, I'll do the thinking around here. <laughs> okay, yeah. go do it. Well, that's how God deals with you. Yeah. Well, Lord, I just think if you'd do it this way, I think it would turn out better. God look at you and say, well, I'll do the thinking around here. Amen. Lord, I really think... That if we, you know, bring in Guns N' Roses on Sunday morning and have a concert, I think we could really build a good church. And God said, I think I'll do the thinking around here. Uh, Let me me say something about that right there. Listen to me. We don't not go to the contemporary way of doing things because that pleases some of you old timers in here. that's That's not what we're doing. We don't go to the contemporary way of doing things because the contemporary way of doing things does not please God. You say, why? How do you know that? Well, just look at, just just look at it. Look at it. Look at what it produces. Huh? I, I have some family members that are not that far, but they're heading in that direction. And I know what goes on in their life because it makes its way through their grapevine. And if 30% of it is true, what I'm being told, that's enough for me to look at that kind of lifestyle and say, I don't want no part of it. Chronic depression. Immodesty. Backbiting. Why Why don't you come to the family reunion? No, thank you. I don't want to be gossiped about for the next 30 years. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) that's true. (laughs) Just, yes, sir, don't, just look at what it produces. Look at the kind of lifestyle. You can get upset about whatever a preacher says against those things, but at the end of the day, the Bible says, by your fruits ye shall know them. And I like the fruits that I'm getting living this way compared to the fruits that I see being produced in folks that are just doing whatever they want to do and calling it liberty. Well, we're living by grace. Well, I think what you're calling grace is chaos. And I don't want no part of that kind of stuff. I want real grace. I want want the grace that teaches me, according to to Titus chapter 2, to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And live soberly, righteously in this present evil world. You know what grace teaches me to do, Brother Tommy? It teaches me not to be a part of this world. Does it look worldly? Then I don't want no part of it. When a guy's standing on a platform, my hair won't go everywhere because I got it coated down with hairspray, honey. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? I don't want no part of that. Yeah. It just looks worldly. You say that's narrow-minded. Amen. Yes, it is. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. Put it on me, honey. I'll, I'll, I'll wear the label. Oh, Amen. Yeah. Hey, I'm a little bit stirred up about that. Yeah. I, and it's been two weeks since I saw that. I just, uh, uh, yes, sir, I, I want to be consumed with good works. I want to be consumed with God's service. Not looking at something that's really serving the flesh and then trying to pass that off as God's service. I gave you one illustration. We'll close with this. Here's your other illustration. Cain. God, you know, there's no record in Genesis to where God told Cain or Abel to bring a sacrifice. Why would they bring one? I don't know. I really don't know. But that's an interesting statement. That's an interesting thing. But they brought one. One brought the fruit of the ground. He brought some vegetables. Maybe some fruit. I don't know what he brought. But maybe brought some squash and cucumbers or whatever. And that's Cain. Abel brings a blood sacrifice. And God looks at Cain's and turns his nose up at it. He meant well. Why else bring a sacrifice if he didn't mean well? God didn't care. Get that through your head this morning. Listen to him. You say you're being a jerk. No, sir. That's the God that we deal with. God doesn't care. You go outside of what God says, this is the right way. God looks at at what you're doing and says, no. No, you get back in here. You get back within this little box, that's a box. That's a box. You didn't realize that, but that's a box. You get back in the box, God said, I'll be pleased with it. You say, well, I think I'm just going to do my own thing. Well, what you're doing, whether you realize it or not, is you're trying to go back as a saved individual. Now you're trying to go back and live the way that you lived before you ever trusted Christ. When you get outside of this box and you start walking in the lust of your flesh and you're insisting that that is okay because, well, I meant well, then what you're doing is you're trying to take the lust of the flesh and push that off on God and say, that has to be acceptable to you and it will never be acceptable. God will never look at it and say, I'll take that. God will turn up his nose at it. And what happens is, A lot of times folks get, most of the time, unfortunately, folks get bitter with it, that response. They get bitter with God's response the same way that Cain got bitter with it. And you know, you know they got, you know they get bitter with it, Brother Curtis, because you take a guy who does do it God's way and let the person who didn't do it God's way and is trying to push it off, on God and say, well, this is acceptable to God. You let them see a guy who God is really blessing because he's doing it God's way. And they'll do to that guy who God really is blessing the same thing that Cain did to Abel. They'll try to murder him. Preachers do that. You take a preacher, let him pastor a church, and he starts bringing in all this stupidity and, oh, God's leading us to go this way. God is not leading you to bring contemporary Christian music into a church. God's leading us to do this. Okay. Then you take a guy who is preaching just hard-nosed, right, across, right straight across home plate, makes people mad while he's preaching. Huh? He's not preaching to make them mad, but that's what happens when you preach the truth. It makes you mad at times. And then just let that produce what it's going to produce and it produces a stronger church and it produces people that have joy in their heart and it produces people with confidence. It produces people that go down to the workplace and say, that ain't right. While the guy that's going to the church who believes contemporary Christian music is okay, he's looking at everything he runs into and he says, I don't know. Hey, I do. I do. You say... How do you know? It's right there. It's right there in your lap. By your fruits, you shall know them. Uh, And then what will happen? The guy who's under the blessing of God, he's over here messing with this guy who isn't. And he's saying, man, you need to come over here. Man, you need to get up. Man, the blessing of God is over here. And this guy who's not under the blessing of God, and he's seeing the guy who is, he's sitting here saying, holy roller. He thinks he's right and everybody else is wrong. He just, he's a know-it-all. He just, you give that guy a chance, man, and he'll murder, he'll murder the guy that has the blessing of God because he'd rather kill somebody than get right with God because he's a scoundrel. He's a scoundrel. Amen. Amen. Got a little preachy there. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your goodness this morning. Lord, thank you, God, Lord, for the truth of your word, God, if it wasn't for your book, God, if it wasn't for your word, Lord, I would be as lost as a softball in high weeds. God, I wouldn't even know which way is up. God, I'm so messed up in my mind, so messed up in my flesh. God, just trying to do the things that I want to do. But God, Lord, you saved my soul, God, by your mercy, by your grace. And God, Lord, you gave me a Bible, Lord. You gave me the Holy Spirit to convict me when I'm wrong. And God, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Lord, That no way I could take the credit for myself. God, Lord, you did it all. And God, Lord, I pray that you'd help us this morning, God, to purpose in our hearts to do the right thing. Lord, pray that you bless, Lord, what's been said this morning. Take it, use it, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, got about five minutes. Take a little break this morning.